Welcome to Ethics in Action, brought to you by the Applied Ethics Center at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Dive into crucial conversations with academics and policymakers as we explore the crossroads of ethics and public affairs. Good morning, Vlado. Good morning here. It's not your morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, my name is uh, Nir, and I'm the director of the Applied Ethics Center at UMass Boston. And this is the Ethics in Action podcast. And my uh, friend and esteemed colleague, uh, Vladimir Petrovich, uh, aka Vlado, is a senior research fellow at the center, and he is also a senior researcher at the Institute for Contemporary History in uh, Belgrade, where he has its digital center, uh, and an outstanding historian uh, focusing recently on questions of transitional justice and genocide. And Vlado and I are going to have a few conversations about um, what the uh, Ukrainian conflict means for uh, Europe, for uh, realignment of uh, world powers. So, Vlado, I am very excited about this. Thank you, dear Nier. Likewise. Um, so, uh, Vlado, we thought we would uh, focus our uh, discussion today on the um, question of uh, balance of powers, on um, whether that old idea is potentially making a comeback. So let me uh, set this up and ask you uh, in the following way. So after the fall of the Soviet uh, Union uh, and the crumbling uh, of um, the so-called uh, Iron Curtain, it seemed like we were uh, ushering in a sort of American moment characterized by um, bro very broadly speaking, very broad strokes. Uh, uh, liberal internationalism, some more soft power, uh, a rise in the influence of uh, global economic institutions, uh, a uh, really an explosion in the influence of uh, uh, international law, significant buildup of uh, institutions from your uh, area of specialty, the flourishing of some uh, ad hoc and hybrid uh, tribunals, the creation of the ICC, uh, you know, strengthening of international monetary institutions. The idea was from the Clinton administration that even China could be roped into this if its uh, economy and infrastructure were modernized and made to uh, depend uh, more heavily on uh, online trade and so on and so forth. Um, so much so that famously, um, you know, Fukuyama thought that uh, uh, this ushered in the uh, liberal telos of history, the end of history. Uh, and even if it wasn't just the end of history, uh, it seemed like a long vacation from history. Um, would it be, what do you think about the idea that this was going on? And uh, maybe more importantly for uh, our own conversation today, uh, did that come crashing down uh, with Russia's uh, invasion of Ukraine? Did that American moment really sort of crumble down uh, with this, uh, with these uh, recent weeks? Uh, Russia sort of reasserting uh, its uh, uh, interests in its uh, uh, backyard, uh, aligning itself very openly with uh, China, with the so-called... Uh, um, partnership without an upper limit, as they uh, like to call it these days. Um, do you think that the old sort of idea of the balance of powers where um, countries are um, aligning with each other to check the power of other countries is making a comeback? So many issues are bundled in that seemingly easy question, right? Yeah. On the one hand, it seems to me that there is no lack of evidence that something like that is happening. Even a random TV news uh, today is putting us in that direction. I just basically turned off the TV, which was saying that there was a huge conference about Afghanistan held in China, 
uh, in the presence of foreign ministers of China, Russia, Pakistan, and several other countries from Central Asia. And I just heard uh, Minister Lavrov speaking about NATO's desire to spread not only eastwards into, let's say, Ukraine, but also through Romania and Bulgaria and Turkey into the soft belly of the Middle East and then I don't know where. Uh, this type of discourse and this type of rhetorics is not only uh, resembling the Cold War rhetorics, but indeed goes into this pre-1914 uh, idea of zones of influence, of competing alliances, of creating complex geopolitical metrics, and so on. So certainly there is a prima facie case that something like that is happening. However, when I think about comeback, and what does it actually mean to come back? When as a historian, of course, I was taught very much so that history doesn't really repeat itself, but as Mark Twain puts it, it frequently rhymes, right? So there might be a certain comeback of a given philosophy, which was actually probably always there below the surface. I hope we'll get to talk about it in some detail in a second. I would leave that for an open possibility that simply this type of reasoning was always there, but we might have been oblivious to it. On the other hand, uh, the type of pre-1914 geopolitical thinking is, I think, not conceivable today. Simply, the world is vastly different. These 100 years have brought about so many different things. The thinking of a multilateral or multi-central world now with nuclear powers um, all over the place is simply not the same thing as, as it was in pre-1914. So that needs to be entertained. It's, it might be balance of powers again, but a different type of balance of powers with different types of challenges and different types of consequences should something run amiss, more global and if I dare say more terminal. And that puts us all in vastly different situation, including the policymakers, and, well, literally all of us. So, so we should just say uh, by a very brief way of background that uh, maybe most uh, famous display of the balance of powers or the uh, you know paradigm uh, case of this is, uh, uh, in the aftermath of the uh, Napoleonic Wars uh, and um, in the Congress of Vienna, which is supposed to sort of generate the uh, peace treaty that uh, finally uh, uh, checks uh, France's power uh, in the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars. And there, there is a kind of realignment uh, uh, of uh, power in Europe that is supposed to by some kind of uh, spreading of it between uh, uh, Great Britain, uh, Prussia, Russia, uh, France, um, to uh, guarantee that no one country becomes as powerful as uh, um, uh, Great Britain, uh, I, I'm sorry, as, as uh, France under Napoleon was, and that ushers in a sort of relatively peaceful, uh, Hundred years uh, uh, or so, ninety-nine uh, years until World War One. You know, you depending on what you think about the uh, Franco-Prussian War, uh, but it was still relatively peaceful, right? Uh, so that's the you know that's the kind of historical paradigm. Now, when you say nothing like that could ever happen, what do you have in mind? Do you have in mind, for example, that some of the uh, weapons and challenges that we have are such that can't sort of exist without some kind of coordination or could you say a little more about um, the, how, this, how this plays out as a variation given the, the changes that you mentioned? Absolutely. So indeed there are certain parallels to the example you mentioned to this concert of great powers which was maintained over these 100 years through different sets of congresses. At first it was the Holy Alliance and then different types of temporary alliances and congresses of different size and scope that were maintained until again the thing ran amiss in the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, but actually, it's a funny thing when you come to think about it that one of the greatest scholars of that period, Henry Kissinger, wrote a book. His first uh, big important book was called The World Restored, and it dealt exactly with that, with the role of Metternich, Chancellor of the Austrian Empire, in setting up that system. Uh, so it's interesting that the same person is actually implicitly and explicitly a promoter of this idea of the contemporary concept of great powers. So he never ceased to be a realist uh, in terms of international relations theory, uh, claiming that this international veneer is basically only a 
uh, window dressing, which is clouding our view and not allowing us to see the real thing, which is a struggle, sometimes bitter, sometimes cooperative relation between the great powers. But uh, two things are substantially different. This European balance of power, uh, I think, was partially dependent on the fact that all of these European powers were at the same time colonial powers, either maritime, settler colonial type of powers, or uh, pretty much continental. So basically, it was European global balance of power which was being uh, being created in Vienna and afterwards. Um, and in a sense, this is probably one of the main reasons that this thing collapsed. The frictions between the great powers were, for the most part, uh, because of their competing interests in the colonies over those resources. Those times are either gone or they might be framed in some sort of neo-colonialism. We can debate to which extent then uh, the parallel would hold. Uh, this is one major difference. Another major difference is that seems to me that the challenges which are ahead of us are different. They are global in nature. Not only uh, a global nuclear exchange, which is certainly a major difference when it comes to strategic decision-making and thinking who's the great power and who's not and whether cooperation is uh, better or the conflict can be more profitable, but also global warming, climate changes, global migrations. Those are all things which were simply not there, uh, or at least they were not visible uh, at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. So it seems to me that it would be more difficult and probably more damaging today uh, to simply renounce any sort of uh, multilateralism or uh, this enormous buildup of international institutions, which didn't really even start with the United Nations or didn't even start with uh, 19, post-1989 or with Washington Consensus. I mean, that type of, uh, of, of thinking and practice started pretty much the middle of the 19th century in parallel with the concert of great powers. The Red Cross was formed in 1864. Uh, the first Geneva Conventions were made around that time and then a slow and steady stream of thinking how the states should interact with one another. So basically, it would be difficult to completely negate that, that, that type of development and to return to, uh, to the same old, same old. It's mm. possible. But we need to ask ourselves whether it's thinkable and also whether it's feasible. So it's a, th that's fascinating because on the one hand, uh, you know, I, I I shared with you yesterday an op-ed that I found from uh, you know the English language uh, uh, Chinese uh, uh, Communist Party uh, newspaper, and the argument that they make pretty explicitly there, you know, could have been literally lifted from these negotiations between uh, Metternich and uh, Castlereagh and the, and the whole bunch there. And it essentially says, when one country becomes as strong as the United States became, other countries need to band together to check its force. Otherwise, uh, uh, the hegemony and values and economic interest will be bad for China and Russia and will be bad for the whole world. And that was from about uh, a year ago and in some ways explains, uh, uh, you know, the kind of uh, close support that the Chinese are lending the Russians now as we speak. And actually, in you know some of the realist uh, uh, neighborhoods, you hear the kind of uh, argument that um, says something like, "Well, the last time we had an explicit in-your-face kind of balance of power, uh, it's true that it was a uh, you know reaction to the French Revolution. It's true that it was a reaction to the emergence of these kind of uh, uh, universalist values." Uh, but, uh, and it ushered in, you know, a more conservative 19th century than many people wanted to see. But on the other hand, it was one of the most peaceful periods in, you know, recent world history. Uh, and 100 years of peace is not nothing, or 50 plus years of complete peace and another 50 years of partial peace is not nothing. That's the, you know, maybe we should look forward to this, right? Uh, and then your argument is, well, uh, there are these global challenges uh, that require some kind of multilateralism. Um, and I guess, you know, that's absolutely right. And that's a crucial difference. But it seems like part of the problem is that the different blocks in this balance of power don't necessarily agree even that those are global challenges. So, for example, both Russia and China have an interest in a, uh, shall we say, uh, looking at climate change in a more subdued ways than uh, the Americans do. 
right? Uh, for example, and a lot of now, you know, we here would say, of course not. They, their real interest, the real interest, is uh, uh, global. But I guess part of what I'm saying is these are exactly the kind of questions that get politicized between the different blocks. So, you know, even the idea that uh, there are some uh, challenges so large that they have to be dealt with on a multilateral fashion is taken to be uh, in some ways an ideological commitment. Mm. Um, so does it matter to Russia and China, for example, that there are the kind of challenges that can only be met multilaterally and therefore there's real limits to the balance of power? Does it matter to them mainly that they want to limit the power of the other bloc? Yeah, you did hit the nail in the head because it boils down to the value of human life as well. And it boils down to the horizon of expectations. I mean, I here frequently in the debates, you know, everybody's trying to get into Putin's mind and then to decide if he was misinformed, if he's surprised, if he's this or that and so on. But I never yet heard a somber analysis about his own temporal horizon for expectations. He has no elections to fear at this point. And uh, neither does the Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party, which means that their horizon of temporal expectations could be completely different. It's not uh, limited to four years of being reelected or something like that. Their uh, concessions to the internal uh, problems of their countries are completely different. The ability of Russians to suffer should not be, uh, should not be uh, underestimated and, and, and so on and so forth. So these are all elements which are in the game. You might be completely right that they're just not interested in the same things. And not only they, but also within those societies, as well as like in the West, there are people who are interested in different uh, visions of the future. Not everybody is taking, let's say, 2050 as the uh, point of observation and thinks about uh, how the climate is going to be at that point, right? Um, so that's, 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 certainly, that's certainly true. Um, however, however, uh, still, it seems to me that uh, many of these issues boil down to uh, what do we aim at. I think that many of these discussions are confusing two things, uh, which is what do we hope for and what do we see, prescriptive and descriptive understanding of the world. And I find it difficult in myself even to, of course, divide those two, given uh, that we are, no matter how insignificant and limited, but still actors in that story. So describing a neo-realist world also borders with advocating for a new realist uh, world, to my mind. Um, then again, it's to be really seriously entertained. Um, I mean, I just remembered in preparation for this conversation, uh, back in 1990, uh, Francois Mitterrand, back then French president, and Margaret Thatcher, back then uh, the prime minister of the UK, were seen literally as old fossils uh, because they were worrying about uh, the rise of unified Germany. And they held a number of meetings with their advisors about what does it mean? Whether United Germany is going to ask for a place at the Security Council, whether it's going to ask for nuclear armament, what does it mean for Europe? What does it mean for France, Great Britain, and so on? But they were literally ridiculed uh, because in a sense, history made it obvious that unified Germany is not interested in European hegemony, at least not on the level of zones of influence. Economically, actually, perhaps, yes. Um, but they were ridiculed because history didn't go that way, but that doesn't really mean anything. It's easy to be a general after the battle, right? Uh, so I think we are here to try to take this broader view. Um, I don't know, what do you think about this idea that perhaps balance of power was actually always there? And that this idea of uh, liberal interventionism or uh, liberal democratic global order was not much more than... Uh, um, than, uh, a mirage. Yeah, yeah, that was in some way going to be my uh, my follow up question. So that, I mean, to kind of frame that, uh, especially in the context of uh, the point you make about the descriptive versus uh, uh, prescriptive uh, views of the world, how the world is and how the world should be. So a lot of realists in international relations, broadly speaking, realism, the idea that international relations uh, are driven by actors uh, trying to fulfill their interests uh, and um, maximize their ability to uh, uh, achieve them rather than by uh, some kind of uh, principled aims and principled behaviors. A lot of realists will say that the balance of power is the best descriptive theory that we have to understand uh, uh, you know, world relations.
conditions and that it's a kind of uh, system that uh, aims at equilibrium. Uh, on that kind of uh, explanation, uh, in uh, 89 to 91, the world uh, equilibrium was broken and it just took, you know, depending on how you want to count 10, 20, 30 years for it to start, you know, going back. So that essentially, Fukuyama was very, very partially right. We got a short vacation from history, but uh, mm. there can be, uh, you know, no telos except that power wants to balance uh, itself out. So, um, so what about that idea that they're never really, you know, let, let's dig into that uh, uh, for a minute historically, that the balance of power sort of post-Napoleonic uh, uh, wars, balance of power idea where powers checked each other never really uh, went anywhere, that there was, that the American uh, internationalist liberal order, Western world uh, ascendancy was a kind of uh, a moment of wishful thinking on, on our part. Uh, what's, Vlada, what do you think is the evidence for that? What are a few sort of coordinates on the map? So, there are several issues there. Uh, firstly, uh, let's imagine that Holborn was a static system. And neorealists would typically say that this is kind of better than uh, some sort of chaos, right? Because you have a certain stable system uh, and it was balanced of two superpowers. True, uh, but then we have to ask this old criminological question, qui bono, who profits from it? So basically, it's not a common fact, but uh, Cold War was really hot in many places and more people died uh, in wars by proxy all over the world than in the Second World War through these couple of decades. So for them, it didn't matter all that much that uh, Cold War never uh, never grew into, into nuclear exchange because they were dead anyhow. Uh, therefore, not every stability is necessarily uh, ethically, I think, favorable to chaos. Take this concert of powers. It worked very well for Metternich. It worked very well for France because France was occupied, if you remember, of course you remember, in 1814 and in 1815 again. Uh, yeah, so Russians in 1814 marched into Paris. But it didn't dawn to them that they should do what Americans and uh, the Soviets did uh, in Berlin, which is to stay there for an indefinite period of time. Uh, they said, OK, it's best to resurrect France, not in Napoleonic borders, but pretty much in pre-1789. Not because they liked the, the French or even Bourbons, but probably because they thought that this is the most feasible way to organize the post-Napoleonic world, right? Um, so, uh, and they, the and because ironically, they're afraid of the Russians. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And now I'm thinking, you know, uh, this is also wishful thinking of a general after the battle. But if similar courtesy was extended to Russians after 1991, uh, when uh, the Soviet Union was falling apart, perhaps the situation would be different now. Why? Uh, the theory, so Fukuyama's theory, actually partially Fukuyama's, partially Kozhev's, partially Hegel's, right? Uh, relies on the idea that not only the democracy is the only game in town, but also the democracies don't wage war with one another. So that's the democratic peace theory, right? Uh, I wonder what do you think about that one, especially about its empirical foundations? Because if that stands, then uh, a lot of the Fukuyamian thing could be, uh, in a sense, mitigated because it's it's still not a coincidence that this erosion of, let's say, dream about some cosmopolitan liberal international order uh, goes hand in hand with erosion, both of democracy and of liberalism and of human rights standards. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, the democratic peace uh, theorem, which kind of, um, you know, traces back really to Kant, to uh, Kant and the, his notion of perpetual peace more than anything else. Uh, it's actually interesting. So that was investigated uh, empirically and it's both true and false. It's true that democracies don't wage wars with each other, that substantial democracies don't go to war with each other. Uh, and that has very strong uh, evidence. Interestingly enough though, um, and I'm forgetting the author who sort of writes the classical uh, empirical piece on this. Uh, I can put it in the um, show notes uh, later when I retrieve it. They go to war more frequently with non-democracies than non-democracies go to war with each other. So that's a, that, that's a weird combination. So a, a U.S. and a Great Britain won't fight 
But however, a US and an Iraq, for example, will fight more frequently than an Iraq and uh, uh, Saudi Arabia or you know what have you. So that democracies fight non-democracies at a greater rate than non-democracies fight each other. So the, you know, empirically the, you know, the the democratic peace theorem uh, is uh, half vindicated. What's what's more interesting is Kant, you know, never advocated that. You know, even if the democratic peace idea that democracies don't fight each other is true, Kant never advocated that. Then you should go and make the whole world a democracy. The idea was, hopefully, they evolve into democracies themselves, and then there'll be less fighting. And the neoconservative sort of misreading at the time in the 90s was, well, if we make Iraq democratic, um, to the extent that that was some of the justification, there'll be a domino effect in the Middle East and we'll get a more favorable, more peaceful uh, Middle East. That has, you know, that has no grounds philosophical or otherwise. Um, but so if the democratic peace theory were true, uh, then Fukuyama's vindication uh, would kind of depend on how long it would take for other places to become democratic. But, but the way I heard you initially was that you thought that the whole idea of the balance of power being dead after uh, 1991 was very, very suspect, that in fact, there were many manifestations of it that we just didn't pay attention to because of our wishful thinking. Yeah, well, you know, uh, I think that these entities can coexist. So there were a lot of utopian ideas in the 19th century as well, which coexisted with the idea of the balance of power. And you could peddle some ideology alongside. For instance, the Holy Alliance was also an ideological movement, and it's called the Holy Alliance for a reason, right? And that also brings me back to this question, yes, stability, but for whom? So this was a stability which was actually uh, deepening the colonial order, right? Uh, so basically, that type of stability was ravaging Africa at the same time, literally. Uh, that's, a, that's just a side note. Um, on the issue of permanent existence of the balance of power, uh, anecdotically, I can tell you, uh, so I had spent 1990s in Yugoslavia, and uh, during that period, Yugoslavia bailed out on me. It uh, literally collapsed and disintegrated, and its historical trajectory was completely out of space. If the whole world was raving about Fukuyama and was uh, fall, the Berlin Wall was falling 1989, the United United Europe, 1992, European Union comes about, globalization, the new economical consensus, there were talks about the reform of the Security Council and that the United Nations should actually reflect uh, some new uh, world which is in the making. And the Yugos were busy with uh, what is called ethnic warfare, recharting of the borders and, uh, and the likes. And uh, back then it was seen just like the conflict in Rwanda, just like the conflict in the Middle East or sets of conflicts in the Middle East as some bizarre anachronism. And this is exactly how the international community, whatever that might be, approached it. It made ad hoc tribunal to deal with it, just like it made ad hoc tribunal for Rwanda and then for Sierra Leone and so on. What does it mean? That means that these things were supposed to mop up those footnotes in history, which are the remnants of the violent 20th century of Europe as a dark continent, as Mark Mazower writes, and so on, until the International Criminal Court comes about, and it did in 1999, when the Roma Statute was signed, and then for yield in 2001, uh, basically from 2002. Uh, but it happened actually otherwise, what seemed to be a brutal last kiss of the 20th century at this point in time looks more like an avant-garde thinking. Uh, that basically uh, this type of warfare is something that we are going to see and we do see daily today. Uh, and I remember in those days, uh, I was bemused by looking at the people who were strategizing like that. Look, this doesn't look good now, especially for the Serbs, but we have to wait a bit. We have to wait for 20 years or 30 or 40 years. Now, what are we waiting for? We are waiting for Russia to get, up, get, to get, uh, get from its knees and we wait for China to really... Uh, reassert its realistic position in the world. So you don't need to be Mirschheimer uh, to uh, to get into that type of thinking, which was widespread from the you know very important people in the Academy of Arts and Sciences all the way down to the dude drinking a beer in front of uh, in front of the local drugstore, which means that probably there is a strong case to it 
given that so many people were vested into this type of thinking, that this thing is just temporary. It's connected to this US hegemony, which was waning. Quite, quite a while, actually, the US was proclaimed by Paul Kennedy, uh, Yale author who wrote the book about the rise and the fall of the great powers as the world's only superpower in decline. That was his assessment of the position of the US as early as 1995 or so. It was clear to him that the US is not going to be able to be world's policeman and the number one superpower indefinitely. And it has to strategize its decline. It's not so easy to get out of history gracefully. Uh, some countries did it. The Netherlands actually did it successfully. Not many people remember now that the Netherlands used to be a global empire, let alone a slaveholding one. The Netherlands at this point is an extremely rich country which is promoting human rights left and right and is a standard in many ways of, uh, of how to organize a polity, but it was of course all built on slave trade among other things. Um, the other countries are not as good in shrinking, let's say, or cutting down uh, that, that leadership position. So that probably needs to be entertained. I wonder what's your reflection and uh, I dare I they're asking a sort of a semi-personal question. So how did all that, how did this dream, the Fukuyami and dream look from the vantage point of the Middle East? Yeah, no, that's that's a great, you know, I think from the vantage point of the Middle East, you know, nobody uh, stopped believing in the balance of powers. Uh, I think the, you know, there was sort of a, um, a view to who the dominant power at any given point in time uh, was and an attempt to align with it. So, you know, when there was a Soviet Union, the Middle East split uh, uh, along the lines of, uh, you know, aligning with one or the other. Uh, when there wasn't anybody who could try to uh, align with the Americans or, you know, alternatively try to create a sort of uh, local uh, locus of power, uh, you know, potentially in Iran, potentially uh, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, part of what you're seeing now, by the way, interestingly enough, is the Israelis sort of figuring out that American power in the Middle East is waning and becoming a lot friendlier to the Russians, again, in the kind of way that uh, small powers usually do ever since the days of the Peloponnesian War between the Athenians and the Spartans, when there is a shift uh, in power. So part of why, you know, the, you know, the Israeli response to the Russian invasion has been so muted is because they understand that they need Russian backing for, you know, the, their security challenges vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Syrians and Hezbollah and so on and so forth. Um, so, you know, I think often small countries uh, historically can only afford to see the world in terms of patrons and in terms of the balance of powers. And they, they assume that when there is one ascendant patron, it's not because an idea has won, but because temporarily one patron has a lot more money uh, and a lot more force than the others. Um, so... But I, I wanted to go back to something that you said that I found um, fascinating, that even if we assume that there was a sort of pretty long moment of liberal internationalism, and tell me if this is fair uh, characterization of your point, but even if we assume that really what it was is a sort of window dressing on uh, the ascendancy uh, of some interest. So for example, you know, how much, uh, uh, you know, how much did uh, African nations benefit? Uh, how much did the Russians benefit? How, how much did the Chinese benefit from, you know, uh, the rise of liberal internationalism? Really liberal internationalism was uh, liberal internationalism for the rich in the first place. Uh, the others got left out and felt that it was a sort of bullshit description of internationalism when it was really uh, parochialism. And as a result, sort of we're getting the pushback against that now. So that's a sort of reframing of your point. In some way, it's a reframing of Mearsheimer's point, uh, which you sound pretty uh, uh, sympathetic to. Is that 
is is that fair? So the idea would be part of why there never was an American moment is that there was never an American moment for everybody in the first place. And now we're just sort of getting the uh, vindictive response to that. So that's where perspective uh, is completely uh, at odds with my description. Uh, mm-hmm. I was thinking while you were talking, why am I so petrified with this vision of the balance of powers coming back? And all my instincts and intuitions are telling me that uh, abandoning any sort of global human rights yardstick is a one-way street. Mm-hmm. There are several uh, reasons why I think so. Um, so firstly, the autocracies today, as well as democracies today, are both threatened and aided by unprecedented technological development as well. Imagine Stalin's paranoia and NKVD with the contemporary gadgets, you know, cell phones, which are giving away your entire movement, your uh, web browsing history and stuff like that. It would have been much worse. Imagine um, the Nuremberg laws seconded by MyHeritage 23andMe and other genetic uh, tools. Horror, horror. And it seems to me that the autocratic regimes, if they stabilize at this point in time, are going to be extremely difficult to dislodge and would be potentially much, much nastier uh, if threatened. That's one, uh, one, let's say, dystopia, which completely petrifies me because it really resembles uh, Orwell's 1984. Uh, And also, I wonder if the West actually would be able to sustain that type of a challenge or a pressure for different reasons that we might discuss now or at some other encounter. So that's one uh, reason that I would not readily ascribe to this back to the future paradigm. If you remember, that was the the title of an article by Mirschheimer from the beginning of the period we are discussing. Uh, The other reason is of course that balance of power leaves so many other things in the gray zone. So what's happening with the sovereign states, right? Uh, In the balance of power theory uh, or practice, it's like five or six important global centers which matter. Uh, What do we do with the fact that there are United Nations? Do we just also scrap that as window dressing and just continue uh, uh, the idea of like five or six huge blocks? Uh, Is that really feasible? And uh, does one want to live in such a world ultimately? Yeah. But I still, I mean, I still wonder what you think about this. If we zoom out a little bit, it seems like from 1991 until very recently, there was one ascendant idea, and it was in some way the Western idea. Uh, And there was a disproportion in influence and power. There seems to be something about this moment that suggests that that has ended or that that is coming uh, to a halt. You are closer to a multipolar world, right? You once again have this kind of argument of zones of influence uh, and uh, backyards and all of that rhetoric, which wasn't taken that seriously for a while, which is, you know, back on the map. So this you know, it started probably when, you know, Syria was creating a neighborhood, I'm sorry, Russia was creating a neighborhood for itself uh, uh, once again uh, in the Middle East. And now it's a sort of reassertion uh, of its ability to uh, stomp around in its own uh, uh, sphere of influence, uh, uh, you know, uh, on its on its own uh, borders uh, in Eastern Europe. Um, that kind of talk, uh, will suggest that there's neighborhoods where nobody sort of messes. Uh, And that kind of talk hasn't been with us since uh, uh, the Cold War. Um, And I guess part of what we're trying to figure out is, has it really not been with us? Or, you know, were we just distracted from it? Yeah, so can I offer um, a metaphor? What if we think about it as a pendulum? A pendulum which swings, and at this point, it swung tremendously in the direction of uh, not only of balance of power, but actually of imbalance of power. Uh, yeah. of several power blocks which are in the making, they are themselves not sure whom are they aligned with. I will not be fooled by this China Sino Russian 
uh, neo friendship. Uh, it's not a stable entity, and historically, it had not been even when they were connected with with the ideology, let alone now. Uh, therefore, things are in turmoil in that regard. So the pendulum is really swinging, and it seems to me that it will take us a while to understand uh, where we are at. The issue is, to me, whether the pendulum can be swung in another direction, or will it swing in another direction? Because it's very self-defeating to throw away uh, all the efforts of global thinking. I don't mean necessarily globalization, mondialization, and so on and so forth, but mere understanding that we are a part of the same species and that we are even bound by self-interest and not only by, uh, by moral obligations. To me, those things are so commonsensical that I will simply not let go of the old world uh, because I think it's plain dumb. Um, what, what would it take to swing it back, though? Especially given what you said earlier about the marriage of totalitarianism with technology. Yeah, I admit it might as well be a lost cause. But, you know, I mean, I fought many lost causes. I mean, I was aiding uh, war crimes prosecutions for, for, for over a decade and so on without getting too many suspects. You know, it's simply how it goes. But that doesn't mean that I would just allow war criminals to go around free if I can do anything about it. Mm -hmm. um, the thing is, uh, you know, enjoying life is a rather contemporary concept, I think. So we might as well be going back to the past in that respect. We did become, if I'm allowed, a bit self-indulgent that we remember, I mean, simply forgetting that for the most part of recorded history, people didn't live as they wanted. That's a complete novelty, actually. So, yeah. but... But, but, but there is another thing that uh, I wanted it's, to mention. It's, it's interesting. I just wanted to sort of flag for you that there's this uh, remarkable review of Mein Kampf by Orwell from 1940. Um, and, um, you know, Orwell says there that part of Hitler's success and part of Stalin's success is understanding that there's a lot of people who don't just want to enjoy their individual life and don't just want, you know, uh, to go to gym after work and, you know, catch a good movie and have a nice coffee shop. Uh, I don't remember his specific examples, but rather really love flag waving and are really obsessed with self-sacrifice and that there is something in us that kind of tends to that. And if you can play it off, if you can tap into it, you, you know, that's in some ways either fascisms or armed socialism, as he called it, uh, you know, secret of success, that's the secret sauce. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you kind of see that playing out in, you know, Putin's propaganda, you see occasionally a version of it playing out uh, in Chinese propaganda, although a very different version of it. Well, your own work, I think, shows persuasively that emotions matter tremendously in international relations. And I hope you will allow me to spend at least one more episode talking exactly about yeah. that. I don't Absolutely. want us to unpack this really complicated thing in a hasty way. So uh, it would be great if you could invite me again to talk solely and to listen and to learn from you actually about the importance of emotions in uh, in informing yeah. narratives. Actually, Absolutely. That is that is our one of our coming one of our coming attractions. Yeah, but about the pendulum still. Uh, so what does it take to get it back? That's at this point, of course, almost impossible to say. But I can say this much. If you hold a certain extreme theory, like neorealism and nothing else, like Mirschheimer, let's say, or liberal interventionism, globalist order, Fukuyama style, and so on, and if you live long enough, it's very likely that history will play that uh, reality in your lap, ultimately. Because simply history is a mess. And uh, what did Goethe say? Uh, uh, every theory is gray, only the tree of life is green. Um, so basically, it's very likely that you will be occasionally right. In the way that Mirschheimer was completely wrong in the early 90s when he wrote about uh, Back to the Future and the reassertion of the multipolar world. And in the way that Fukuyama was tremendously wrong after 2001, let's say. And I think those two ideas can completely coexist. 10 years of relative peace and happy stability, this in retrospect, the period, let's say 1989, 2001, probably could be seen as some sort of crazy interwar period, right? Uh, just like the last decade of the 19th century and the first decade of the 20th century were called the uh, fin de siècle or la belle époque, like the beautiful time, right? 
that's quite possible, but it doesn't make it actually less beautiful. Ten years is quite uh, quite a period of time. So simply to neglect it as some sort of a dream seems to me to be uh, to be a bit pretentious because uh, lots of things were happening and we can actually learn from those uh, from those things. It might not have been only an American moment. I mean, in Eastern Europe, it was a moment of immense liberation in Czechoslovakia until it collapsed into Czechia and Slovakia, let's say. Um, so in many ways, one could see history unfolding and uh, that enthusiasm could have been squandered by now, but it was, uh, it was quite an enthusiasm. And as we talked many minutes ago, enthusiasm in history matters. It's very difficult to build a successful society with some sort of pessimistic narrative about the endless struggles of, uh, of some entities. Uh, one simply has to give meaning to lives of people, to your own life, thinking that you're part of something more meaningful than an eternal struggle of country A against country B. Uh, plus, if I can uh, add something more, you mentioned that the traces of this were seen and visible from 2015. And of course they were. So uh, Syria was already uh, a nightmare. Ukraine was already a nightmare uh, that people didn't pay attention. I mean, it's their fault. It was there all the time. Um, actually, it was the downfall of the Arab Spring which showed uh, where the situation is going. But uh, probably in retrospect, 2001 and September 11th is going to be seen as this, uh, this moment, which is sort of uh, creating, I mean, transforming Fukuyama's dream into a nightmare. And if I'm not mistaken, even he himself wrote an apologetic piece after September 11th, basically claiming that history didn't end. Yeah, yeah. Um... I want to offer you uh, an analogy and ask you what you think about it. Um, <clears throat> some of the uh, attempts, for example, uh, in the United States to explain the uh, rise of uh, populism domestically and variations of that uh, came up in Europe uh, as well, uh, had to do uh, with the failure of um, spreading the uh, kind of uh, fruits of uh, globalization and uh, uh, liberal economic order and so on and so forth. So some people, uh, you know, uh, blue collar working class uh, uh, primarily were left out uh, of the new uh, economic uh, order. And that's, that, that's been a kind of uh, popular um, and important explanation for uh, why the Trump movement and variations of it uh, in Europe have been uh, on the ascendancy. Um, do you think there is a parallel to that uh, in international relations? Uh, so in other words, uh, might we think about the kind of reemergence of the uh, classic balance of power or the strengthening of it uh, or the uh, decline of uh, liberal internationalism, if that's what we're calling it as a shortcut. Is that a, a result of a similar kind of uh, failure uh, on the international sphere to make internationalism really international, for example? It's a variation on something we asked earlier. But... Yeah, yeah, indeed. Uh, so what seems to me is that um, the... The logical consequence, if there was ever a serious trust toward the altering of the structure of the world, would have been a reform of the United Nations, and especially the reform of the Security Council. Uh, but that didn't happen, curiously enough. And I think it was never really seriously entertained by anybody throughout the 90s. There was a lot of talk about it, but nothing nearing. So basically, uh, there is a straight jacket from 1945 uh, which is still sort of, you know, like the, the gravitational point of this future world center, global governance and whatnot, uh, which is at best obsolete. And we see it now worrisomely that United Nations are very rarely mentioned even. I mean, there is <laughs> there are problems all over the world. I mean, Yemen is burning, uh, Ethiopia is burning, uh, Syria barely stabilized, Ukraine is burning. And you would expect, even during the Cold War, United Nations were much more proactive. Okay, they were talking shop of the two superpowers and so on, but there were things, blue helmets, this and that. At least some ethics was debated somewhere. Um, it seems to me that descending into balance of power, which is not ideological at all, uh, would, would basically strip any sort of moral pretense. And then it's a question for you, 
whether even even a hypocrisy would be preferable than actually abandoning uh, any sort of uh, norms apart of the norms of dulce decorum est propatria mori. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a very good question. I mean, look, in some way that takes me to the role of moral considerations in this competition between, if you will, uh, uh, two world orders. And this is what's bothered me about the Mearsheimer uh, kind of argument. Um, the argument being, you know, uh, had we been more uh, uh, careful uh, in the early 90s, had we heeded Russian uh, uh, warnings uh, about uh, stop the expansion uh, of NATO uh, eastward, we wouldn't have found ourselves in this kind of situation. It was that expansion of uh, uh, NATO eastward that violated uh, the balance of power or any potential for Russia enjoying the balance of power. Uh, and that is why we find ourselves where we are. And this is why it's all our fault, basically. It's all the West's fault is, is a sort of uh, um, caricature, blurb version of uh, Mearsheimer's argument. I, I, actually, not so much a caricature. I think that is the argument. Uh, and one issue with that, I mean, there is something to that, I think, on the one hand. Historically, um, you know, there were there certainly were some humiliating aspects of how we uh, of how the United States treated uh, uh, Russia after uh, 1991. There were also some useful. Uh, I think it's a complicated picture, actually. Uh, but what I wanted to focus on is the moral point that you raised. And in a way, the problem with that argument is that it, you know, it really pits uh, uh, two worldviews together and ignores the fact that one of them, at least in theory, is morally superior to the other. So one worldview is the spheres of influence worldview. Never mess with somebody else's backyards if you don't want to get shot. Uh, and uh, the other worldview is, uh, at least in uh, principle, the sort of self-determination liberal internationalism worldview where countries should be able to determine uh, their own future. Now, the West, broadly speaking, at least says that it is committed to the self-determination worldview. The problem with equating between, and that's hypocritical. Often it's not, often it takes over countries in spite of this uh, uh, self-determination worldview. Examples can be prolifer proliferated for sure, and um, that's all good and well. The, the problem with equating um, the Mearsheimer idea of backyards and the liberal internationalist idea of uh, uh, self-determination is that it completely ignores the interests of third, of third parties. So, you know, places like Ukraine and Poland and the Baltics generally wanted nothing to do with the Russians anymore. Um, and if all you say is, well, they were in the backyard of the Russians, you should have been a little bit more careful. Um, you know, that's a little bit akin to saying, you know, don't make that man angry if you don't want him to beat you up. You know, it's like saying to uh, 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 Chris Rock in the Oscars, you shouldn't have insulted uh, uh, Will Smith if you didn't want to get slapped. Well, you shouldn't go around slapping people as a, you know, as a sort of moral principle in the first place. Um, so if we're already talking about the sort of moral difference, isn't there an inherent, I mean, and this is a question the sort of realists have a problem with, isn't there an inherent superiority to uh, the self-determination model. Yes, the West fails to live up to it half the time, but at least there is a principle on the basis of which then you can criticize the West. What principle are you gonna use to criticize Russia? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, given that I'm not an ethicist, of course, I love to discuss morality and so on because I'm completely unburdened by knowledge on the matter, right? Uh, <laughs> but I don't think one needs to be deep into it to understand some no. of the facets of the no, like for instance, for instance take 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 wikileaks 
uh, WikiLeaks damaged substantially the US foreign policy and the foreign policy of uh, different countries of European Union, because uh, they spread most dirt about it, but also because the standard of expectation and code of behavior from the US diplomats and European diplomats is way higher than the one we use to measure the uh, you know, behavior of China or Russia in international relations. We wouldn't be surprised to hear about such scandals in the Russian or Chinese environment at all. And this is a burden that the West simply has to deal with. The hypocritical pretenses of the West are exactly a mixed bag of expectations that one has from the West and doesn't really have from Russia and, and, and China at this point. This is an honest question then whether I really think that this type of hypocrisy is still um, still very much, uh, very much superior to simply saying, yeah, well, at least Russians are saying it as it is. Um, because, you know, ultimately, even the daughters and sons of Chinese uh, and of Russian oligarchs, they live in the West. And the Chinese elite is being schooled in the West. I don't really see many people fleeing eastwards. That says something. I don't know what it says, uh, actually, exactly, but I know it, it does say something. So um, the thing is that there will be new battlegrounds in time to come. I hope they will be moral battlegrounds, let's say, or that the superpowers will compete in the better way of like, I don't know, energy, uh, smart energy savings and so on. Oh. But I'm afraid that's not going to be the case. Yeah, you know. We have to make nasty choices. Yeah. I mean, I think the question of hypocrisy that you raise is actually crucial because uh, you know, and if the sort of so-called West uh, or the Western world uh, are the hypocrites in this case, the, the, the good thing about the hypocrite is there is a basis for embarrassing them back into virtue. And there is a basis for embarrassing them to use an old world. There's a basis to, for embarrassing them, if nothing else, back into uh, a good behavior because the principle which the hypocrisy states is part of their self-understanding, right? The, it's part of their... Uh, identity. Uh, so human rights, even if they are not ascribed to, is supposedly part of the declared identity, uh, uh, at least on and off, uh, of a Western power. And at least what you can do is expose the discrepancy between the stated identity and the practice. And that often, you know, changes history. There, I mean, we've talked about this in another context. There's actually a really interesting role to embarrassment in international relations. Uh, some will argue that American progress in the civil rights uh, legislation, um, uh, you know, in the second half of the 20th century was uh, in part due to them being embarrassed into uh, adhering to what they actually declare uh, by the Soviet Union. So as they were competing, you know, for sympathy with the Soviets, the Soviets said, well, look at Jim Crow. What are you, why, why are you lecturing us? Uh, and that that had that that had a real impact, and so yes, hypocrisy is uh, in some ways superior to sort of the cold, you know, national grandeur uh, realism of the Russians and the Chinese because it gives you a basis for moving back. Yeah, and I mean, don't mistake me for some sort of moral crusader at all costs. I'm just thinking, okay, firstly, this, this, this discussion also belongs to the story of uh, importance of emotions because narratives matter equally. Uh, both sides, both winners of the Cold War uh, assumed highly moralistic discourse and they were crusading in the Cold War from that, uh, from that basis and they, therefore they were also vulnerable. Just like, for instance, today, uh, the US uh, is much more hurt by Guantanamo than uh, Russia would, or than China is by, by the uh, violence of Uyghurs, even though numbers-wise that can't be compared. But people don't expect, ultimately, China to treat dissent differently. And they do expect the US to extend certain rights, such as habeas corpus, even to the uh, non-US citizens, even to the non-US citizens indicted of terrorism. So this is a high expectation and we shouldn't get rid of it. And finally, then again, to compare it to the internal politics that you mentioned, this certainly hurts Obama much more than it hurts Trump, for instance, because Trump is emblematic of this sort of, let's say, self-interest uh, foreign policy, whereas Obama is more emblematic for this sort of uh, yeah. outreach of uh, like the beacon type of or exporting yeah. of the policy. Yeah, no, that's, that's beautifully said. Which in a way brings me back full circle. Um, if you do have a balance of power that's kind of 
emerged today. One, uh, you know, uh, one lopsided aspect of it, one weird asymmetry in this balance of power is that you're going to have one part of the system, one part uh, uh, of the balance that at least purports to care for principle more than the other part. Um, so the sort of West, as it were, is going to continue to declare allegiance to internationalism uh, and to individualism and to human rights. And openly, by the way, both the Chinese and the Russians in their different ways are going to talk about ideas of national glory and of collective attainment and of sort of mystical histories. And um, I want to go back to something you said. So that's interesting. And I wonder if you compare that version, that 21st century version of the balance of power to the 19th century, whether those powers were more truly realist, uh, all of them. And uh, then we have in our contemporary uh, version. Uh, but I want to go back to something that you said. So, so that's a big difference, even if we do have an incarnation, a new incarnation of the balance of powers. And then also connected to that, you said you thought that the uh, uh, alliance between Russia and uh, uh, China was almost uh, inherently less uh, stable. Um, one way to think about that is that it's inherently less stable because there isn't an idea at the bottom of it in the same way that there is a, um, on the Western part of the balance of power. Yeah, well, again, probably uh, uh, many things get convoluted by the end of the conversation always, such as yeah. the nature of our talks. But uh, I think at least to clarify a couple of things. So whether this was a pretense or not, this export of democracy, uh, democratic peace, global international order, I think that can't be answered with either or. Um, it seems to me that for some people it was, and for some people it wasn't. It's not unlikely that the same person or policymaker or institution can do both at the same time. You know, if you give it a try, if it works, great. If it doesn't work, it's still in the U.S. national interest. So either way, it's okay. And it was basically testing. And not only the U.S. I think that the whole West was banking on a theory that increased globalization and trade interdependence is somehow going to create a superstructure. It's kind of funny because also, you know, I mean, those same people were destroying Marxism at the same time. And this is almost a Marxist type of an analysis of what's going to happen. Like you create some economic structure and then ultimately ideological superstructure is going to appear. Uh, that doesn't seem to be happening. So the world is economically tremendously interdependent. But what we see is growing instability. Countries don't give a damn if uh, Suez Canal is going to be clogged for a couple of days, uh, if the prices of iron are going to go you know, double in a week, and so on and so forth. The other things become priority. So just like in 1914, when economic interdependence between the superpowers was quite high, they didn't prevent them at all to go into murderous uh, civil war, basically, European civil war, which lasted from 1914 until 1945, which destroyed Europe for decades to come. And mind you, those were really smart people. We are not talking about some people who don't know what they're doing. They knew what they were doing, and yet they ended up the way they did. And indeed, I would like to have a separate talk with this about you, but uh, the open question is, if it continues the way it goes now, you say that the West is going to keep advocating for some sort of human rights standard, which by extension means some sort of global international humanitarian yardstick. I wonder if this is gonna happen. Because again, the West is suspect to elections. The elections bring about changes. Uh, you know, such, last such rotation in the US uh, brought about quite some erosion of that type of thinking. Uh, and we shouldn't be, I think, fooled about it. It's dicey. And if that happens, then as they say, the center will not hold. And the EU, which is archetypical product of globalization of the 90s, would be really endangered because the EU will be in much more delicate position uh, if, uh, if, if this type of, uh, of, of uh, you know, playing Could, um, becomes, uh, becomes business as usual. Do, do, do you think that this kind of uh, blatant action uh, by Russia could uh, actually buttress uh, commitment uh, to ideas of human rights in the West that we kind of became 
complacent about them because the challenge was, uh, uh, you know, not significant. And now that sort of the idea, as it were, is under attack by an illiberal uh, uh, power and coalition, they might get some life breathed into them. I don't know. I'm, I'm really, it's really, I left my crystal ball in the other room. I mean, the, the, but the whole thing is, uh, uh, to me, boils down to I'm, I'm, I'm fervently watching, as we all are, the media uh, since the end of February. And uh, I really got worried with the way how people are stunned in the West. People are stunned by the fact that the West more or less rallied uh, and came to the defense of Ukraine. So as if even the Western politicians were, you know, favorably surprised by how they got lined up in the end. You know, and then there were much talk about how this thing is actually reinvigorated in the West. Yeah. And I keep yeah. thinking to myself, okay, well, I mean, how to put it? Um, you're not supposed to be surprised. It's a alliance and it should act as alliance. And secondly, I'm not happy at all that it got reinvigorated by these events. I'd much prefer that the events didn't go that way. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Vlada, this has been this has been really really great. Um, let us uh, maybe just uh, give a sort of uh, preview of uh, coming attractions to uh, uh, our listeners. Vlada and I are uh, planning to have some uh, future conversations uh, about, among others, uh, the role of uh, emotions uh, in international uh, relations. Uh, potentially um, some conversations focused on some uh, key uh, texts uh, that have to do uh, with uh, the recent uh, conflicts, maybe some of uh, uh, Putin's interesting uh, uh, speeches, maybe some other uh, key texts uh, that we uh, choose. So uh, please uh, do stay tuned to uh, future episodes of the podcast uh, on this. Vlado, like always, a very, very great pleasure. Likewise, Nir. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Ethics in Action. For more on this podcast and on the Applied Ethics Center, check us out at umb.edu backslash ethics.